Content warning. The following program may contain descriptions of violence and or sexual assault that may be upsetting to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. The upper left corner of the United States is full of stunning scenery. Beautiful mountains, raging rivers, breathtaking valleys, and so much more. But the Pacific Northwest is also known for something more sinister. This beautiful land also seems to be a breeding ground for serial killers and others who perform heinous acts. I was born and raised in the Pacific Northwest, and I've had a fascination with true crime since childhood. I'm here to tell you the true crime stories of the PNW. Grab your sweater and a cup of coffee. I'm your host, Emily, and this is The Upper Left Corner. of Leah Freeman. This case was requested by listeners Gina and Skye. Thank you for sending in your recommendations. I've gotten so many and have a growing list of cases in my Excel spreadsheet. Before we get started, this past week, Steve Houle, a Washington State Patrol trooper, passed away in an avalanche. He was a 28-year veteran of the WSP, and Chief John Batiste stated about Steve, quote, Steve was a great person and an excellent employee, loved and respected by us all. We hold his memory and his family close to our hearts in this painfully sad time. This one hits close to home for me, as my dad is a retired trooper, and he was lucky to call Steve a friend. If you are interested in helping his family, I have linked the donation site on my website at upperleftpodcast.com. If you click on Support Victim Causes, you can find a running list of charities related to the victims of the stories I tell, or something that is close to my heart. Right now, you can donate to Trooper Houle's family. He leaves behind a wife and three children. And you can also support KK's Readers, which is the nonprofit that Kaylee Sawyer's mom started that provides books to Head Start kids in honor of her daughter's memory. Thank you for helping me support these causes. Now let's head to the PNW town profile. Coquille, Oregon is a tiny logging town located in southwest Oregon near the Oregon coast, which is one of my favorite places on earth. As of the 2000 census... When this case takes place, the population was just over 4,000. The town got its name from the Coquille Native American tribe. The town has a total area of 2.8 square miles. Now on to the story. Leah Nicole Freeman was born on October 29, 1984 in Coquille, Oregon to parents Dennis and Corey. She also had a sister named Denise. 
Her parents would later divorce, and Dennis went on to marry and give Leah many step and half-siblings. In the fall of 1999, Leah was a freshman at Coquille High School with blonde hair and green eyes. During volleyball practice one day, she caught the eye of a senior boy named Nick McGuffin. He had a 67 Ford Mustang, was a football player, and she fell for him immediately. Leah was a three-sport athlete playing volleyball in the fall, basketball in the winter, and track in the spring. Even though she was small, her dad said she was never intimidated by bigger opponents. She was very outgoing, had lots of friends, and wanted to be a beautician after high school. Honestly, she sounds like someone I would have been friends with in high school. In the spring, Nick asked her to prom. She wore a beautiful white dress, and if I told you to imagine a prom hairstyle in the year 2000, that is exactly what her hair looked like. Leah's mom thought Nick was an okay guy, but the age difference did concern her. Once she found out they were having sex, she did become very concerned. She asked Leah to spend less time with Nick, and they began to fight about it a lot. On June 28, 2000, Nick and Leah had a good day together. They playfully washed his car because it had writing from graduation still on it, and at about 7 p.m., Leah decided to hang out with her friend Sherry. Nick dropped her off around 7 p.m. and planned to pick her up around 9 p.m. to go on a double date with Sherry and her boyfriend. Leah and Sherry wanted to go jogging, but when Sherry asked her mom if they could, she said no because Leah had a habit of letting Nick pick her up when they were out together, leaving Sherry to walk home on her own. Leah overheard this conversation and got upset and decided to walk home. Nick arrived around 9 p.m. for their planned double date, but was surprised to learn that Leah wasn't there. He drove around looking for her and was even pulled over twice that night because he had a headlight out. He called her mom around 10 p.m. to ask if Leah was home, but Leah's mom said she wasn't there. Nick called up his friend Kristen to drive him around to help look for Leah because his headlight kept getting him pulled over. After hours of searching, Nick drove by her house and saw a glare from her window and thought it was her TV, so he assumed she had gotten home safely and went home for the night. Leah didn't have a cell phone, so it wasn't like she could text her boyfriend to say that she was okay, so after seeing the glare in her window, he went home. But Leah hadn't made it home that night. Her mother, Corey, woke up at 3 a.m. in a panic and contacted Nick and Sherry the next morning to start trying to track her down. By mid-morning, Corey and Nick went down to the police station to report her missing. However, it was brushed off as if she was a runaway. Corey couldn't think of a single reason her daughter would run away, especially without her boyfriend, so she continued to look on her own with the help of Leah's father. On June 30th, a few days after Leah's disappearance, the police requested to interview Nick. They also took his Mustang in for a search. One week later, a person came forward saying they found a shoe in the road near the high school, and Leah's sister confirmed it was her shoe. On the 4th of July, her other shoe was found covered in blood 10 miles away from where the matching shoe had been found. After the second shoe was found, the case was taken more seriously and not treated as a runaway. After five long weeks, on August 3rd, Corey was playing at a park with her friend's grandson when an officer pulled up and told her they needed to go home. She knew it must have been bad news. Once she made it home, she was informed that Leah's remains were discovered down a ravine of a logging road. Unfortunately, the body was in bad shape after being in the wilderness in the summer, but police tried to gather as much information as possible. Police in the community started to look at Nick as a suspect, and the rumor mill ran rampant. Nick and his family started receiving threats at their house, and he said he couldn't even go into town without someone confronting him about murdering Leah. During this time, he was hospitalized for anxiety attacks and had even made a suicide attempt. After about a year, Nick met a woman and was able to move on in his life to some extent. In August of 2000, an officer with the Coquille Police Department supposedly requested the famous psychic investigator 
Ed Dames assist with the case. However, Police Chief Mike Reeves said he was not aware of any of his officers contacting a psychic. Ed Dames was a retired U.S. Army major who was a frequent guest on the paranormal radio show called Coast to Coast, hosted by Art Bell. The psychic's findings were that Leah's killer was a male and that he possibly had an accomplice. He said the killer remained in the Coquille area and had a unique work environment. This information aired on the August 8, 2000 episode of Coast to Coast, and he was hopeful this would make the killer nervous enough that he might slip up and expose himself. The family was highly skeptical of the psychic, but they were also desperate for any clues they could get so they didn't completely shut the door on him. Just weeks later, Police Chief Michael Reeves expressed his frustration with all of the rumors and misunderstandings in the case. He said the rumors that were plowing the investigation, quote, have caused us quite a bit of problems because we're having to spend investigative time following up stuff that circles back to just bad stuff that's being put out on the street. And it's costing us a lot of man hours to do these things, end quote. Reeves acknowledged that his department was having to answer a lot of complaints about the police being desperate, not having any leads, and not making progress, but he said they were working towards a conclusion. One of the local rumors was that two men were seen near a gas station holding up a blonde girl between them, and that it might have been Leah. The speculation was that maybe they had hit her with their car. However, they did not believe the evidence at the scene showed that she had been hit by a car, as she didn't have any broken bones. In September of 2000, when Leah should have been heading to her sophomore year of high school, her mom, Corey, and some of her friends created a memorial out of balloons, stuffed animals, and a mailbox where people could leave messages for Leah at the front of the high school. Her mom maintained the memorial, spending about six hours a week making sure the wall looked good. At this time, Corey also said she was furious with the authority figure who was complicating the case by telling people not to come forward with information. She felt like the statements coming from the police department about having to chase down rumors was preventing people from talking with the police. In December, the family gave another interview to the local paper, trying to keep Leah's case in the headlines. On the six-month anniversary of her disappearance, and more frustration from the family was exposed. Leah's stepmom, Denise, said, quote, They haven't told us how she died. They say it will compromise their investigation. They tell us not to listen to the rumors, but it's the only way we hear anything, end quote. Leah's father, Dennis, echoed his wife's frustration, saying, quote, Some people are spreading such far-fetched rumors, it bothers me a lot. It makes me mad that people are saying things like she was at a drug party. As far as we know, Leah never even smoked a cigarette, end quote. Leah's grandfather said, quote, I'm not saying the police don't want to solve this case, but they could at least inform Leah's mother on a weekly basis. We haven't heard anything in months, end quote. At a January 2001 city council meeting, Corey asked the council why her daughter only deserved one part-time officer investigating her murder. She asked the council to review the actions of the police department, and while the council members were sympathetic, they admitted there was not much they could do. The police chief was in attendance but did not address the council or Corey during the meeting, and that upset Leah's family as well. After the meeting, Corey said, quote, This was a total waste of time. The next step will be to bring this to the Justice Department. The police can get it set in their heads that they will be seeing this face for a long time, end quote. The following June, on the first anniversary of Leah's disappearance, there was a candlelight vigil at Sanford Heights Park, where Leah used to like to play basketball. They unveiled a park bench in Leah's memory in the corner of the park next to a row of shade trees. At this time, the family said they still don't know how their daughter died, only that they had been told it was homicidal violence. Four years after Leah's death, the case was officially cold. 
Corey said, I often think of moving away, but I can't. There's unfinished business here. She contended that the Coquille Police Department botched the investigation when officers failed to collect evidence from a party the morning of June 29, 2000, the day after Leah's disappearance. There was a rumor that Leah had reportedly been at the house the night before when she disappeared, and the police had come to break up the party. They saw beer cans and a white sleeveless t-shirt on the house's deck the morning after. The shirt matched the description of what Leah was wearing that night, but since it was a man's shirt, the police didn't seize it. According to court documents, once police realized that could have been significant, they went back hours later to the house and it had been cleaned up and the t-shirt was gone. Leah's mom was also upset at police for labeling her daughter's case as a runaway for close to a week until the blood-spattered shoe was found. Corey said, I will never take any information to any police agency again. I am sick of the attitude they give me and I am sick of being ignored. She also said her theory was that the police had a suspect but cannot prosecute because of mistakes in the investigation. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Let's take a minute to talk about teeth. Between my AM love of coffee and my PM love of red wine, my teeth definitely need some attention to keep them whiter and brighter. That's why I'm so excited to tell you about my new sponsor, Smile Brilliant. If you're like me, you're confused by all of the teeth whitening products on the market. But since taking Smile Brilliant on as a sponsor, I've learned that the number one dentist recommended product is the custom fitted tray. However, they're very, very costly at the dentist office. That's why the best option is Smile Brilliant. With their lab's direct process, you can have a custom-fitted teeth whitening tray at a fraction of the price without a single visit to the dentist. Using an exact model of your teeth, Smile Brilliant's lab technicians will handcraft your trays to ensure the best possible results. Simply order the system at smilebrilliant.com, make your dental impressions at home, and return them to Smile Brilliant using the prepaid envelope provided. In a matter of a week, your trays will be back in the mail. As an upper left corner listener, enjoy 30% off site-wide at smilebrilliant.com using code UPPERLEFT, all one word. That code is also good on their other amazing products, such as their night guards or electric toothbrushes. Head on over to smilebrilliant.com today. Your business deserves the same expertise as that of a Fortune 500 company. If you need a CIO-level service, why hire a full-time staff member at $250,000 a year when you can get this on-demand service for fractions of the cost? As your CIO on demand, we'll give you the steps you need to take so as to minimize interruption to your business and profitability and provide you and your business with training and education to prevent future attacks. To get an efficiency review for your business today, contact us at www.ee-services.com. And now back to the story. Meanwhile, Nick McGovern had moved on with his life. He still had his long-term girlfriend who gave birth to their daughter in 2007. Nick had gone to culinary school and was employed by the Mill Casino in North Bend, Oregon, near Coquille, as a chef where he catered banquets. His life was going well, and he had moved on from the death of his high school sweetheart and all of the speculation that he was involved with her demise. In 2008, a new police chief came along and made it his mission to find out who killed Leah Freeman. He allowed ABC's program 2020 to follow along in the journey. However, the family was still in the dark at this time. Without Leah's family's knowledge, the police turned the heat up on Nick, even following him to work. Nick said it was obvious he was being followed and often waved to the camera crews. The reason was that a witness had spotted Nick and Leah together after 9 p.m., which that doesn't line up with Nick's story that he never saw Leah again after he dropped her off at Sherry's house. 
The most damning witness, though, was the friend that Nick had called to help him look for Leah. Kristen drove Nick around that night since his headlight kept getting him pulled over, and she came forward to claim that the night Leah went missing, she and Nick had done meth and he had tried to have sex with her. This discredited Nick's story of what had happened that night, and although he denied doing meth, he did admit to smoking marijuana and kissing Kristen. Another theory the police came up with that was based off a town rumor, that Leah may have been pregnant, and that could have been a problem for Nick, who was 18 while Leah was 15, and this could have been considered statutory rape. However, no one close to Leah has ever suspected she was pregnant, and during the 2020 interview, Nick said it would not have mattered either way to him if she was pregnant or not, and her parents already knew they were sexually active. As the family continued to be in the dark, Leah's dad passed away in 2009, not knowing what happened to his daughter. Following his passing, Leah's mom wrote a letter to the editor saying it was time to find out what happened to her daughter. At the beginning of 2010, the Coos County District Attorney pulled into Corey's driveway. He let her know that a cold case team was being put together to look into Leah's case, and the investigation was starting over from the beginning. Everyone was to be re-interviewed. This was the first sign of movement in the case that the family had seen in a long time. Six months later, on June 25, 2010, just three days before the 10-year anniversary, it was announced at a press conference that the district attorney was convening a grand jury in the Leah Freeman case. Standing in front of a stack of binders with nearly 5,500 pages of the case file, the new Coquille police chief said they were confident they had identified a suspect in the case. He also defended his police department, who had come under so much scrutiny before he became the police chief, by bringing the entire case file and saying the officers had visited Washington, Arizona, Utah, Colorado, and London since the investigation began in 2000. They had even taken the case to a crime-solving organization in Philadelphia that takes cold cases and they start from scratch, with fresh eyes, to try and help the police departments come up with new leads to investigate. The grand jury convened that summer, and over 100 witnesses were called. The grand jury unanimously voted guilty, so the district attorney could move forward with charges. On August 23, 2010, Nick McGuffin was catering a banquet when he realized he forgot a recipe at home. So he got in his car and headed to get it. When he got home, he checked his mailbox, and an arrest team pulled up and placed him under arrest for the murder of Leah Freeman. This arrest was captured by the 2020 camera crew. They asked him, why do you think you're being arrested for the murder of Leah Freeman? And he responded, because they have nothing else to go on and I'm the boyfriend. He was taken to the county jail where he anxiously awaited trial. At the trial in July of 2011, a key witness testified that he had seen Nick and Leah just after 9 p.m. having a loud argument. This pokes a hole in what Nick stated happened that night, which was that when he went to pick Leah up and she was gone, he drove around looking for her but never saw her again. The prosecutor's theory was that the sneaker found by the high school was left as Nick forced Leah into the car. Leah was shouting and he tried to keep her quiet, but he took it too far and strangled her. His defense attorney refuted this with making the point that there was no physical evidence of that theory being true. His car and house had been searched and there was no trace of evidence he had anything to do with Leah's murder. After nine days of testimony, both sides rested their cases and the jury was sent to deliberate. The jury came back with the verdict of not guilty on murder, but came back guilty on the lesser offense of manslaughter. The interesting part of this verdict is that Oregon is one of only two states that you do not have to have a 12 to 0 guilty vote to convict on the charge of manslaughter. 
only 10 of 12 jurors would need to vote guilty for a conviction to stand. And that is why the prosecutor used the charges of murder and manslaughter, as the manslaughter charge would be a backup plan if there was a couple holdouts on the murder charge. The final vote in the case of Nick McGuffin was 10 guilty and 2 not guilty. So in all but one other state, he would have been found not guilty on the manslaughter charge as well. When the verdict was read, his mom was shaking her head and the mother of his daughter audibly gasped and the judge kicked them out of the courtroom. As much as everyone wanted justice for Leah, Nick had a strong group of supporters behind him as well. He also grew up in Coquille. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison at the Snake River Correctional Institution before being sent to a labor camp at Tillamook State Forest due to good behavior. After his conviction, Nick's mom began sending out a 25-page packet of information about the case to everyone she could think of, such as congressmen and representatives for the state. And one of these packets happened to land on the desk of the Oregon Innocence Project. The case was assigned to attorney Janice Puricow, and she uncovered some new evidence that was not known at the time of his trial. There was a paint chip found on Leah's shirt when her body was recovered. The paint was either car paint or some type of maintenance paint. And it didn't match Nick's Mustang, his parents' car, or Kristen's car, who had driven him around that night. There had been rumors that a car had hit Leah that night, knocking her shoe off near the high school. But the paint chip turned that rumor into a possibility. She gathered 20 witnesses who saw Nick that night and compiled a timeline. And she claims that there is no window of time long enough that he could have harmed her that night. They also claim that they have a witness who saw Leah walking by herself that night just after 9 p.m., and this man was at an outdoor ATM, so they were able to verify the time he saw Leah by the ATM receipt. This witness would debunk the prosecutor's witness who said they saw Leah and Nick arguing just after 9 p.m., and this was more likely Nick and Leah's friend Sherry discussing where she could have gone, since he had arrived at about 9 at Sherry's house to pick up Leah. The biggest find was that trace amounts of unknown male DNA was found on both of Leah's shoes. Back in 2000, it was not enough DNA to be able to make heads or tails out of, so the lab didn't tell anyone about it, including the police. But since the DNA had come so far, this was a big deal for the case when it was found. So in 2017, Janice Purical requested it be retested. The results came back that it was not a DNA match to Nick. The judge threw out the conviction, but that did not make him a free man. The Coos County District Attorney then had to make the decision to either retry him or set him free. And while that decision was being made, Nick remained incarcerated. In the process of deciding, he asked for Corey's opinion, and she asked him not to try it again because she couldn't handle the stress of another trial. Nick had already been in prison for nine of his 10-year sentence, And the DA also took into account that the last conviction was based on a 10 to 2 vote, and that was before the unknown DNA that was not Nick was presented, so the odds were probably not good on a second trial. Nick was released from prison after serving over 9 years of his 10-year sentence. But just because he was released from jail doesn't mean he was completely exonerated. Since the case was not retried for him to be found innocent, he still has been found guilty of manslaughter, which affects his ability to get a job and many more things in his life. When he went to prison, his daughter was four, and now she is 13. The Department of Justice could step in and make a case to clear his conviction. However, the DA and judge have said just because the DNA doesn't match what was found on Leah's shoe does not mean Nick is innocent. To this day, no other arrests have been made in Leah's case. Nick McGuffin has been outspoken about Leah's disappearance since his release. He did an interview with 2020 saying, that's the reason why I'm here. 
to keep Leah's name in the light, to bring her name forward, to get somebody to come forward with the truth of what happened, to get resolution for myself, for her family. I am an innocent person. They found vindicating DNA evidence that finally shows what I've been saying for nearly 20 years. And that is the case of Leah Freeman. This week's local wine I paired with my true crime is Snoqualmie Vineyards Riesling. According to the winemaker Keith Kennison, this Columbia Valley Riesling opens with intense aromas of golden peach and dried apricot that give ways to succulent fruit flavors with a hint of honey and finishes with crisp, juicy acidity. I shared this bottle with my bestie, who is a Riesling girl, and we both loved it. Cheers, and thanks for listening. left corner a pnw true crime podcast if you enjoyed the episode today please leave a five-star rating and review and share it with a friend all of the sources for this episode are listed in the show notes and at upperleftpodcast.com you can follow the show on instagram at upper left corner pod or on facebook at upper left corner podcast if you have a case suggestion or a pnw wine recommendation please email me at upperleftpodcast at gmail.com Thank you for your support.